Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In the preface to his latest book, Benjamin Lewin writes that he uh, he wants to explain how science works, warts and all. And he wonders what science will look like with AI at its creative center. The book, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact, is published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press and brings Dr. Benjamin Lewin to our show now. Welcome. Uh, you focus mostly on genetic research in this book. Is it a unique science? No. I focus on genetic research because it's what I am f- most familiar with. But I think the, the principles of doing science would be the same whether it was physics or chemistry or any of the hard sciences. Well, you write that in your preface, in this book, I want to explain how science works. This is not an idealized view. It is science, warts, and all. I try to show not only how science should and often does work, but also how failings in the system can misdirect it. Yes. Um, Science is a wonderful concept as a principle. It's a self-contained system. You present results to the community of scientists, if you like, and those results are scrutinized, and if there is something wrong with them, that will become apparent, and science will be corrected. But at the same time, science doesn't proceed in a straight line. It's more a sort of zigzag, and if you like, the the zigs are sort of going forwards and the zags are going backwards because it's a human endeavor. So, um, And sometimes you have to go back. Sometimes you have to go back. It's limited by human capacity. It's limited by the society in which it functions. There are some things that science... If, if you look back at the history of science, there are, are times when data would suggest a conclusion, but no one was prepared to come to that conclusion. Think about, think about Galileo and the Earth going around the sun. Um, the data were there, but that wasn't, that wasn't the, the, the yeah. prevailing wisdom of the time. Very difficult to fight against the religious orthodoxy of the time. And many more recent examples where the data suggests something, but science has been slow to come to the conclusion. But my point is that science gets there in the end. It always gets there in the end because the data will always triumph over whatever um, errors are introduced. You spent 25 years as the founding editor of Cell, a leading bioscience journal. Uh, That was until 1999. Did you report on many changes in genetic research over those years? Yes, I think of that period, or perhaps the period from the 1960s on, as being the golden age of molecular biology, because things were happening. It was just so fast and furious. Everything kept changing. It was enormously stimulating. I don't think um, science is really quite like that anymore. It's a much more managed process now, much less intellectually um, stimulating and changeable. So there haven't been as many changes in the 23 years since you left the magazine? There have been some very significant changes, but I don't think they quite come to the same level as discovering the structure of DNA, working out how DNA is used to code for proteins, how the organism develops from expressing its genes. Um, they are interesting, very interesting, but they're not at, they're not at that level of, of fundamentalism. And you say that in this book you're trying to show not only how science should 
and often does work, but also how failings in the system can misdirect it. Yes. Um, some of those failings are internal. There is a prevailing dogma, and people simply can't see beyond the dogma. Some of the failings... That's like the old religious dogma. So it's <laughs> so it, human... Humans are the same even if the, even if the, the rules change. Yes. People, people have uh, a mindset. And I, I suppose in the modern era, you'd call it groupthink. Um, there was for a long time, for example, a mindset that genetic material had to be protein. Only protein could be complex enough. DNA had only four components. It couldn't be complex enough. And even after DNA was shown to be the genetic material in 1944, it was another 10 years, maybe 20 years, before everybody really accepted it. Why? I mean, even people who were sophisticated and, and were good at science? Well, you know, Jim Watson, who was one of the discoverers of DNA, said sometime around late 1940s, I think, that when he started his work in science, they weren't really absolutely sure DNA was the genetic material. Um, and, there and when did RNA come along? Um, RNA was a bit later, um, really... But that was finally after it was accepted that DNA was yes, a real thing. Yes, once it was accepted that DNA was genetic material and a virus was shown to have RNA, it was easy to accept that RNA, that, that any nucleic acid could could be the genetic material. You begin your book by describing what happened in a lab when you were a graduate student that led you into this work. Well, yes. I, I was a graduate student um, doing a degree at Imperial College in London, and there was a set experiment to do one afternoon, and I started doing it. And after about 10 minutes or so, I noticed there was nobody else left in the lab, and the <laughs> others should have been there doing their experiments. And so I reached a convenient stopping point, and I went out to find out where everybody was. And they were all in the tea room at the absolute far end of the building. I said, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be doing experiments? And they said, well, you know the procedure you're doing can lead to TNT, the explosive, as a side, um, as a side result. And they didn't warn you? No, no warning at all. They just thought it was safer to leave and, and, and see what happened. Ooh. Gave me pause for thought. Well, that sounds kind of mean. <laughs> I would have said, hey, what you're doing might lead to TNT. You better watch out. You might have an explosion here. Well, I'm afraid nobody warned me at all. Anyway, nothing happened. Uh, no explosion. So is that what led you to become a critic of science well, rather than a researcher? Well, only, only in passing. Um, my problem was that doing science is, is very, doing experiments is very intensive. You do it... Um, graduate students really work all hours of the day and all hours of the night and you get so caught up in it you end up knowing absolutely everything about what you're doing but very difficult to keep up with other bits of science when I had my first faculty appointment I was constantly criticised because I was off to the library to read what was happening instead of doing experiments and the general reaction was you should be doing experiments you should be writing papers you should be putting things out there that contribute to the reputation of the university. And, you know, for me, that, that took away the point. Once, once I couldn't understand what was going on in science in general, it didn't seem to me it was really worth doing one thing in intensity. I wanted to know everything. And that led me, um, really, into becoming a critic of science. 
that's not a very common role, of course. There is a, there is a view in science that the proper role of a scientist is to do experiments, not to criticize it. Yeah, well, somebody has to write this stuff down. Yes, but there's a feeling that it should be the people who are doing the experiments. Of course, there's a catch-22 there. The people who are doing the experiments don't have time to write it down, and if they do write it down, then they get criticized for not doing experiments. <laughs> you have lived in New York for quite a few years, but of course you began in London. Is science done differently in the UK and the United States? I don't think it's different now. When I started out, it was quite different. Um, at that point, in the sort of mid-1970s, people in British universities tended to work in small groups, two, three, four people maybe, and people in the United States had already started the move towards larger groups, say 10, 12 people. And that made it very difficult if you were working in the UK to be competitive on a hot subject. Uh, there were a few places you could be, but for the most part it was difficult. That was a difference in, in the attitude. There was more of an individual attitude in the UK and more of a group attitude in the United States. Today, I would say that has completely changed, and everybody works in large groups, or almost everybody works in large groups. It's, it's a big difference in the way science is done. Well, that means that people with big egos have to suppress them, don't they? Oh, no, it means that people with big egos have to run the team. Uh-huh. And everybody goes along with it. They say, oh, they say, oh, Benjamin really knows his stuff. Well, not everybody wants to run a team. Um, it's a bit like an orchestra. You have a conductor conducting, and then you have all the individual players playing their parts. I mean, my concern about that is that if you're playing one small part and you never get to see the whole picture, what does that say about how science develops, how people have ideas, if, if people turn... What, my concern in short is that people, is that scientists are turning, instead of being researchers, into becoming technicians. Now, uh, so you get aggregated results across multiple studies doing it this way. That is part of it. Um, very, science has become complex to the point at which you need different levels of expertise in different topics um, and very often it's a rare person who can see the whole thing and hold it all together. And what about uh, analysis by AI? Is that become a, a new part of the system? It's just beginning really to make its impact on science. Um, it, it, it's got some great points but it also it also has some um, worrying aspects. Well, I, well its name is already uh, a clue, isn't it? Artificial? Artificial, yes. So one of the principles of science is that you present your results in such a way that other people can understand what you've done and so they can reproduce the results. Once you start using an AI program, if you don't have a full understanding of how that program works, and as you say, the, the very word artificial suggests you might not, then how are you going to verify the results? I, I can give you, a, and, and part of this is that people are more willing to accept a result um, generated by AI than they would be if that same result were generated by a person. I'll give you an example. Um, the first photograph of a black hole was published a few years ago. It shows a sort of... Um, rather fuzzy black center and a, 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 a very fuzzy sort of ring of light extending around it. 
uh, earlier this year, the people who took that photograph reanalyzed it using AI. And they now present three photographs. The original one, a photograph which is the result of the AI analysis, which shows a much tighter black circle at the center and a very tight ring of light around it. And then another one, which is the same photograph, um, but reduced to the resolution that the, the telescope would have. And the point is that you look at the second photograph and you say, aha, that's what a black hole is really like, because the AI says it is. But if, a, if an individual scientist has said, my intuition is that that circle of light around it is not really so fuzzy, but is much tighter, he'd have been laughed at, if not actually accused of fraud. But because it's AI, it's accepted. How is it explained that it, well, they, it's an inaccurate photograph? Well, it's not inaccurate, but the AI was trained on photographs of black holes and simulations of black holes. So we have a bit of a circular argument here. The AI is trained on simulations, and now it goes to the real thing and says, this is what it really looks like. Um, I think it's a, just a little bit worrying. Yeah, you, you, you say AI worries you a bit. Why? If the, it sounds to me like it can solve problems that humans can't solve. Well, yes, but how do we know if the solution is correct? Ah. If we can't, if we don't know how the AI is working, how are we, how are we to verify that conclusion? Yeah. Well, I guess you have another AI. Is all AI the same? Is all AI Could the same? we have same? an AI checkup on AI? Um, well, it would be circular, wouldn't it? Because mm. the, the program that was doing the checking, you, all, you would have no more understanding of that than of the original program. The, the, there's, there's another example, which is protein analysis. So analyzing proteins has been done up to now by a very arcane process called X-ray crystallography. Basically, you shoot a beam of X-rays at a crystal of the protein, then you analyze it mathematically to decide where all the, to, to, to determine the position of all of the atoms in the protein. Um, that's, as it were, been replaced by an AI program um, produced in, um, by the, produced by the people who made the um, program that that played Go so successfully. And it turns out this program has now analyzed all known proteins, and where there have been discrepancies with the X-ray crystallographic data, the program has proven to be correct. But we don't know that it's correct in every case. And I asked the, the, the inventor of the software, um, how do we know if it's correct? And he said, in effect, well, you look to see if there are discrepancies later on. And if there are some discrepancies, then you have to go in and analyze them. But you don't, you can't go and analyze directly the um, program that has produced the answer because basically it's AI, it's artificial, it's, it's doing its own thing, as it were. I'm talking with Benjamin Lewin on today's Leonard Lopate at Large. His book, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact, is published by Cold String Harbor Laboratory Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Are we moving away from hypotheses-driven science toward data-driven science? Oh, we certainly are, if not all the way to AI-driven science. Um, the traditional view of science was captured by a philosopher called Karl Popper in the 1930s, who said basically scientists test hypotheses, and it's only 
a hypothesis is only uh, valuable, it's only real, if it's capable of being falsified. Now, scientists have a pretty dim view of philosophers and sociologists. Mm. Basically, scientists do science. They know what it is, and they don't really have a high opinion of anybody who tells them what it is. But Karl Popper struck a chord there, and he, he has had, I think, a great effect to the point at which scientists always describe themselves now in terms of working as Karl Popper said they should work. In fact, Karl Popper has created modern science in a sense. Before Karl Popper, people got on with it. Now they feel they have to report the results as though they were testing a hypothesis. Hmm. Now, that has changed with the advent of, of big science, large-scale correlations. So, uh, for example, whereas it was a very lengthy process to identify the gene responsible for human disease, uh, sort of honing it down one by one, as it were. Now you can look at genomes, genome sequences mm. en masse, and you can say, well, we have 10 people with the disease here. We have thousands of people who did not have the disease. Let us see what is unique about those genomes. It's is that a, a human genome yes, project? Yes. It's a totally different way of doing science. Somebody said correlations have basically replaced the need to do controls, the the need for hypotheses because it all falls out of the correlation. I think that's a little facile, but mm. certainly there has been a change. In, for here, and there's a the change is both that the data are bigger in the sense that we now have you know hundreds, thousands of human genome sequences, as opposed to doing an analysis of a gene one by one, and also of course the size of the groups doing the science is much bigger. So we've moved from small-scale science to big-scale science. When, when Ernest Rutherford discovered the um, proton, which I think was 1907, he reported it in a paper on which he was the sole author. When they discovered the Higgs boson a few years back, there were 1,000 authors on mm. the paper. That, that's just a totally different way of doing things. So traditional uh, bioscience used to be conducted by small teams of researchers working from hypotheses, and you say, and they were more likely to take risks, to follow hunches, and to make unexpected discoveries. So how have the uh, current large research teams comprised of specialists changed that? Well, they don't take risks, that's for sure. They, they set out on... You, you, it, if you have a huge investment of millions of millions of dollars, you, you, you don't take risks with it. You set out to do a project, uh, like the human genome, for example, and you work through till you have it done. Um, it's, what about CRISPR? CRISPR? CRISPR is a wonderful illustration um, of all sorts of things in science. The original discovery that led to CRISPR was completely arcane. It was a very strange um, aspect of behavior in bacteria, and the man who discovered it, Francis Mejica, had a lot of trouble persuading anybody to give him money to follow it up. It seemed to be of absolutely no relevance or use to anybody, and then 10 to 15 years later, it turned out that this could be used as a technique for introducing changes in a gene, gene editing as we would call it, which has terrific potential for curing diseases. Um, you know, cystic fibrosis is caused by a mutation. You could reverse the mutation using CRISPR. Of course, it also has all sorts of ethical issues as to whether you can, uh, can and should uh, modify uh, human genomes. But uh, the point I want to make about CRISPR is that if Mejica's work had simply been 
uh, either suppressed or ignored or not funded because it was some weird aspect of bacteria that nobody had any understanding of, we would never have the technique. And how advanced is that now? CRISPR is actually very advanced as a technique. You can basically take any gene you want and make any modification you want in it. Um, whether you should do that with humans and how it should be controlled, that's a separate issue. But, but technically speaking, it's an extremely advanced technique. I have a feeling there are politicians in Florida who would love to use it on certain young people. <laughs> I'm afraid politics... Politics is, is, is not a good influence on science. Has that been a problem over the years? Politicians it becomes slowing so. things down or um, fighting against certain advances? The main issue in the United States has been stem cells. Uh, for the religious right does not like the notion of taking stem cells from a fetus, of course. Hmm. And... As a result of that, all stem cell research was banned in the United States. Or, or no, to be more accurate, federal funding for stem cell search was banned. Uh, a private individual or a company could do it if they wanted to. But the consequence of that, for example, was that the technique for IVF, in vitro fertilization, was developed in Europe, not in the United States, because it, need, it needed work with stem cells. Stem cells have terrific potential. Um, the long-term potential would be to regenerate an organ. So if you have a defective kidney or a liver, to, to be able to regenerate it from your own cells. But we need stem cell research to be able to do that. And as long as that is suppressed, the United States is going to be behind in that area of, of biology. But does it really matter if uh, somebody in France or England or Germany or whatever comes up with something that you can't do here, it becomes part of our science as well. Science is global. Uh, that's certainly true, and no one country is going to be able to suppress developments. On the other hand, you have a situation where people want to do research on some topic. They can't do it in the United States, so they go to Europe, so you export talent. I don't think that's a very good thing for the country. Um. Well, you, you said earlier traditional bioscience was conducted by small teams of researchers working from hypotheses and were more likely to take risks and follow hunches and make unexpected discoveries. Um, so has that changed with, with the, uh, the, the large research teams I think today? It ha I think it has changed. I think science has become less interesting than it used to be because it's more predictable. Um, the lack of predictability. I mean, most of the great discoveries which occurred while I was editor of Cell, so we're talking last 25 years of the 20th century, um, most of them were not anticipated. People were looking for one thing, by accident they discovered something else, then off we were in some absolutely unexpected area. How important was the sequencing of the human genome? I think it's a means, not an end. It's a great tool to have. Um, has it led to any major discoveries of itself? No, I don't think so. Not yet. One hopes it will, but I don't think so. There are aspects which could be great. For example, we can sequence human genomes. We now have the sequences of some Neanderthal genomes, and we have the sequences of some Denisovan genomes. So we have three 
different groups of humanity, if you like, and by comparing their genomes, maybe we can begin to get an inkling of what it is to be human. And what we got from each of them. Yes. And I what mean, we, how, and how, and how, much, we, of, and how, we how much of a, of a Neanderthal am I, really? Two percent. That's all. Well, you could be 1%, you could be 2.5%. People vary in the amount of Neanderthal DNA, but it's, it's, a, it's 1% or 2% on average. And then it also depends on where you live, doesn't it? I mean, you're, you're more likely to meet somebody who uh, comes from a, a similar heritage if you're in a certain area. Yes, apparently there is less Neanderthal DNA in Africa than there is in the West. Because Neanderthals developed in the West. They developed in Eastern Europe, didn't they? I'm not sure about that. But there are, there, there are geographical differences in the distribution of Neanderthal DNA in the human population. Uh, now, uh, you focus mostly on genetic research in this book and compare the discovery of the double helix in 1953 by a two-person team willing to question established doctrines and the genome project that aggregated data across hundreds of studies. Well, yes, uh, and it's sort of ironic in a way because th the driving force in both discoveries was Jim Watson. So in 1953, science was just very different. Watson and Crick, as two complete outsiders, could take on a project like the double helix was there resistance to them because they were outsiders? Um, I think there was resistance to them because that's not what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, these days, they'd never have the chance. These days, they'd be part of a group. They have assigned projects within the group. The group would have a weekly meeting to discuss progress. The chance that they could go off, build their own model, talk to people, and do something completely different would be very remote. Is, um, how much is lost by that? I think a good deal is lost by it. Um, not so much in the sense of discovery, because, you know, the discoveries are going to be made anyway, but in the atmosphere of research and the interest of it. So you ask if scientists are becoming technicians rather than critical thinkers. That's my concern, that they know a great deal about exactly what they do, but they don't understand the whole picture. I thought it was the end of science this is now 20, 25 years ago, in the early days of gene sequencing. So a gene has two ends. And I asked someone who had submitted a paper to sell a question about one end of the gene. And she said, I don't know about that end. I do the other end. <laughs> and I thought that was the end of science. You've got one gene, it's not very big, and you only know about one end of it. That really led, that started my concern as to whether scientists were becoming technicians devoted to one very tiny aspect of the problem instead of people who understand the whole thing. Is there anything that's gained by it? I mean, well, maybe it allows people who aren't as brilliant as Watson to still do important work. That's certainly true. If you, if you understand some aspect of science but not all of it, you can work as part of a team very productively, whereas it might be difficult for you to run your own lab. Sure. You know, there is, there's a question about science, which is whether it advances by the Newton effect or the Ortega effect. The Newton effect goes back to Isaac Newton, who said, if I have seen further, it is because I stand on the shoulder of giants. And it's generally taken to mean scientific discoveries come from 
individual geniuses. Whereas the Ortega effect goes back to a, a Spanish philosopher who argued that um, everybody makes a contribution, no matter how mediocre. And the general feeling has been that up to now, science has functioned on the Newton effect. Individuals have made great advances. Um, that may be changing. With the era of big data and big science, we may be moving to a, a, an era in which science advances you know, little by little, aggregate by aggregate, instead of with single major discoveries. So we're, we don't have scientific superstars today the way we did in the past? We have scientific superstars in much the same way that we have conducting superstars of orchestras. They run teams. They're brilliant at it. But it's not quite the same as having one individual idea. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. CRISPR-Cas9 Bring me a G Encoding for a specific protein Make a few snips At this coded locus You work so well inside a strap Joke of CRISPR-Cas9 I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Benjamin Lewin. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. You might also consider becoming a BAI buddy for $10, dollars $25 a month, which allows us to plan for the future. Uh, again, the number... 212-209-2950 or online give to wbai.org and my guest is Benjamin Lewin his latest book Inside Science Revolution and Biology and Its Impact published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press uh, you've been uh, you were the first editor of Nature New Biology in 1971 uh, and, and founded Cell in uh, in what in 1974, were there? What made, what led you to leave? Sound to me like you were doing to something leave cell or to because leave Cell became the top rated, top ranked journal in in life sciences. Well, <laughs> it became very intensive. I was ru- I'm sorry. We were we were running actually four journals, and. Um, Cell was the lead journal, and I was editing Cell and running all of the journals, and it became too much. So I decided it was really time to step back and try something else. 25 years is quite a long time to to spend doing one thing. I just thought it was time to do something different. Are most researchers so averse to failing that they won't question established dogma? I don't think it's a matter of failing. I think it's a matter of not wanting to step too far from conventional wisdom. Um, there are often cases where a great discovery is made and afterwards it turns out that other people had the data 
but they didn't either they didn't believe it or they didn't understand the significance or they just didn't have the nerve to follow it up but it would have been helped if it uh, help if they had revealed it yes but they 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 were frightened that they had got that something was wrong that they hadn't um, mm. that the data weren't right it takes a certain you know i mean for example take the case of prions infectious agents that are protein it takes a certain nerve to say i have an infectious agent that's a protein, when the entire conventional wisdom of the last century says it, this could only be a nucleic acid. You have to have a certain personality prepared to go out on a, on a limb and say, look, the data say this, even though everybody believes it can't be true. But that, that, doesn't that go against the, uh, the problems of, of the pressure to publish, publish or perish? Well, the, the pressure to publish, certainly, but you don't want to publish something that's wrong. It, it, but it encourages quantity over quality, doesn't it? Yes, it, it does. It does. And it is true that retraction is viewed as a blemish on your record. It shouldn't be. If you've made a mistake and you retract it, that should be fine. But the fact is, most people regard a retraction as a real embarrassment, which could be an impediment to their career, and they do not like to do it. And it's on paper, it's been published in a, in a journal or whatever. Yes, we, ha we ha from time to time we had something published in Cell, which turned out to be wrong, and sometimes the author would publish a retraction, sometimes they preferred to skirt it, and on one occasion I spoke to a scientist whose results were wrong, and I said, look, you should publish a retraction. And he said, look, he said, you don't expect me to say I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that attitude, I'm afraid we weren't going to get a retraction. Well, one of your chapters is headed The Myth of the Scientific Paper. Why a myth? Ah, well, this goes back to our previous comments on Karl Popper. People, scientists now have an expectation that they should test hypotheses. So when they write up a paper, it's always written as a neat, logical construct. This is the hypothesis we tested. This is the data we obtained. This is how they support or how they refute the hypothesis. The fact is, it wasn't done at all like that, of course. Basically, at some point, probably, somebody made some observation and said, that's an odd observation. Don't quite understand what that means. Doesn't fit with everything. Let's have a look at it. And having a look at it and getting further data, um, down the road, uh, they discover something. And then, retroactively, you make up a sort of framework for this is why we should have done the experiments. Not really why we did them, but this is why we should have done them if we had been thinking completely logically all along. It, on the other hand, it serves its purpose because it means that when you read a scientific paper, um, it's fairly, it's easy to assimilate. If it was actually written as a hodgepodge of sort of stream of consciousness, this is how we came to do it, it would be quite hard to understand. Put it into a framework which says this is how it fits into existing science, this is its context, and it's much easier for somebody else to understand it. You ask, can questions about patents, fraud, and ethics keep pace? Yes, patents is, is an interesting question. So a patent really guarantees you... Well, right if you're working in a group, does the group get the patent? Um, patent law is different from science. In science, authors may be on a paper for a variety of reasons. They may have actually physically done the work with their hands. They may have had the concept to lead to the work, or they may have provided reagents, and so on. On a patent, you can only be on a patent if you actually did the work with your hands. There are some cases where people were 
uh, a scientist was the most important author on a research paper, but was not on the pattern because he had not actually done the work. But you also talk about fraud. Fraud is a very delicate subject in science. How much fraud is there? Well, that's a really good question. The, the straight answer is nobody knows. <laughs> um, if you look at retractions, about 0.2% of papers get retracted, and probably, at a guess, about half of those are due to fraud. So it's not... It's certainly not a factor, a big factor in science. You, you might say... Yeah, well, I can't understand why anybody would try fraud, because wouldn't a scientist be, uh, a claim be checked by other scientists? I think most, it, most of the cases where I've had, an experience, had any experience with fraud, there has been a similar pattern. The fraud has been committed by a young, ambitious scientist working in the laboratory of a more senior scientist and he has thought he had a direct line to the truth and he was too imp I say he by the way because they were all men hmm. I don't know of any women who committed fraud it's a and what, thing. what is the the sexual uh, makeup of, of the of the sciences these days well the sciences are still more men than women I think but um, women are certainly reasonably prominent but the fraud cases that I encountered anyway were, were all male. And the general drift of it was they felt they had got the truth, they didn't want to wait to do the experiments to prove it, and they were in a competitive situation. There was one um, interesting case. We, we had published a series of papers in Cell, and another paper came in the series, and a reviewer looked at this and he said very mildly, he said, I'm surprised that this paper has come in so quickly because it's only two months after the last paper and I calculate it would have taken my lab about a year to do this work. This set the senior scientist thinking and it turned out that the paper reported the use of more Petri dishes than the laboratory had actually bought in the period. So it clearly couldn't be correct. I've always had a suspicion that the work was done and that the young scientists simply doubled or trebled the numbers to make them look better, because it turned out later that this was a result which was actually produced by other people, and in fact, if he'd waited two months longer to submit it, probably nobody would ever have known. Well, that brings up the issue of ethics, doesn't it? Ethics in what sense? Well, you know, doing the job correctly, not lying... Oh, yes. But the point is that there is absolutely no advantage, or there should be no advantage, to lying in science, because if you make it up and it's wrong, it's going to be found out. That's the great strength of science, is that something that is wrong will not survive, because sooner or later somebody else will produce a result that disagrees with it. People will go back to see what is the cause of this disagreement, and if you were wrong, it will be shown to be wrong. But we still are people who have people who uh, object to some scientific advances. This is not within the realm of your book, but the windmills that create electricity uh, have been shown to produce electricity without uh, causing any damage to the environment. But at the same time, there are politicians who are claiming that it's killing whales and 
birds and all of that, and we should stop using them. It's one of the things I would like to take on, didn't take on in this book, um, is the degree to which superstition and plain ignorance or willfulness um, just ignore science. There's any number of cases, and I think, my hope is that if people understood better how science worked, they wouldn't be quite so liable to succumb to irrational thoughts. Uh, But a lot of the objections to science are not really to science. For example, abortion, where some people are are claiming to want to ban abortions at times when it would not even be possible. I I wouldn't like to get into the politics of that. (laughs) But... But Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, I'm just thinking the, the problem, what, what most people object to in science is not really science, it's technology or the uses of science. I mean, your windmills, for example, the windmills are a technological development. They're, we're talking here about wind farms, I see, mm-hmm. that generate electricity. And that seems to be, I mean, obviously there are, there are one or two genuine issues like birds flying into them and being killed and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, it's a great technology, and it's almost a sort of free source of electricity. But it's not really science as such. It's the use of science. It's technology. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Benjamin Lewin, whose latest book is Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. Uh, it's published by Cold Harbor Laboratory Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're, we're talking about biology, but would we have a, be having a similar conversation with some of the other sciences? Yes. Um, I think physics, for example, is physics is in some ways a more advanced science than biology. It, it started earlier. Um, it developed a theoretical framework more quickly. Uh, but the the principles of science are the same. I've just been reading a a book, an interesting book by a fellow called Peter Watson called Convergence, which takes the uh, tries to present the view that all science is one unified activity and I don't entirely agree with that because physics is divided for example into theoretical physics and experimental physics, whereas biology is pretty much experimental. There are differences, but there is a similarity to all science which is the scientific attitude which is basically facts are supreme. You can't argue with the data, uh, as opposed to the humanities, where all facts, any fact is as good as any other fact. That's not true in science. All all science has the same principle, which is we believe that the data uh, must be paramount, and if a theory disagrees with the data, then the theory is wrong. Well, how important is reproductibility? It's absolutely crucial. Um, if you can't reproduce a result, then it's no good. It's not interesting. And the, the, whole, the whole principle of science is that you present your results in such a way that somebody else can reproduce them. And if they try to and they fail, then there is a problem and that problem has to be sorted out. What about failings on the part of his practitioners? You mean failings to reproduce? Yeah. Well, there have been some studies lately which show that science is less reproducible than you would think. 
um, and that when you try to reproduce a paper, very often you cannot reproduce every aspect of it. The critical thing is whether you can support the main conclusions, I suppose. But it is true that experiments ver experimental conditions can vary in surprising ways which you would never have thought about. At the height of the um, controversy about whether people should be able to do work on gene cloning, one group went off to England to do some work because it was permitted in England and not permitted in the United States. And one of the reagents they took with them was their water. Now, you would think water is water. What difference could it possibly make? But they felt that if they diluted their reagents with the local distilled water instead of their own, that could make a difference. My point is that you never know what, um, what, what feature of the experiment, no matter how apparently insignificant, might in fact have an effect. That's the, that's the problem with reproducibility, is that it's really, really difficult to describe everything in such detail that you have covered every single base. You, you, you write down, you put in your paper everything which you think is pertinent to reproducing the paper, but there may be some small thing, like the source of the water, that you just never thought of. Now, all of this costs money. What about grants? How has uh, science become largely about funding? Science is now largely about funding, and most of the funding comes from government sources, of course. The problem with the grant system is that it's a real catch-22. You can't get a grant uh, to undertake a piece of research unless you can provide some convincing reason why that research is going to be productive. You can't provide the convincing reason without some money to do the research. Does it become political? Um, it's not so much political as a matter of gaming the system. So typically speaking, once you've got a grant, you will spend some part of it on obtaining data so that you can provide convincing evidence for the next grant. You won't reveal that you're doing that because that's not what your grant was for. And when you apply for the next grant, you don't want to show too overtly what data you've got in hand, but you need to have just enough to be convincing that what you are proposing to do will be productive. Are you asking in this book if science can continue in its present form or if new methods of evaluation will be needed for it? to function in the future? Well, the stereotype view of science is, is that investigators have ideas, they test hypotheses, they get data, they move on to the next thing. And science is now working in large groups. It's working on the basis of big data and correlations. Um, it's using AI to analyze its results and maybe in the future to suggest experiments. Uh, so I think science is changing. And my question, I, I don't have an answer to this, but my question is, will it be as productive in this new, in this new means of operation? One example of the current critical reassessment of epigenetics that's raising the possibility that there may be factors in inheritance extraneous to DNA. Ah, oh, yes. So epigenetics is, I have to say, much misunderstood, um, even by the people who do it. <laughs> so, so um, DNA has four components, four types of base in it. It turns out that you can modify one of those by adding an additional, uh, think of it as a sort of star or something. You can modify one of the bases, and that will make a difference to the properties of the gene. Now, in its and what is gained by that? Well, it's 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 a process concerned with turning genes on and off. 
it's if you like it's a marker which says this gene should be active or should not be active um now as part of the system for controlling gene activity that's quite unexceptionable it's not the way things were thought of 20 or 30 years ago but it's an interesting discovery the question where all the excitement arises is whether that marker can be inherited by the next generation uh, so far I have to say all the claims that it can be none of them stand up but there is a great deal of uh, misrepresentation for want of a better word and claims that you can make change you can make it's called an epigenetic marker you can put an epigenetic marker on a gene and the next generation will inherit it I have to say the evidence for that is very slight and does not appear to apply to humans or mammals in general. There may be some cases in plants where that's true, but that's, that's so far, that's all that's substantiated. But there are a lot of very um, overexcited claims about epigenetics. We have just a couple of minutes left. Are there other things you want to address? Well, I would say my main concern is that science is, is not understood well by the population at large. It's viewed as a sort of black box that delivers results, and people don't really understand how that works. I think if people understand... But then they argue over whether a vaccine... Yes, exactly, exactly. So if people understood how... If we could have a better level of education so people understood how science worked, then I think we would be in a much better position to assess what it can and cannot do for us. And my main concern is that Education is being so politicized that science is simply not being taught in a proper manner. Well, some of us did better in our science classes than others. For me, it was, i got to get through this so I can go into the art class. <laughs> and then there were other people who were absolutely not interested in art who loved the science class. I think we should have a view that if you are an educated person, you should understand not necessarily the details of science, but the principles of how science works. I don't see why that should be any different from understanding Shakespeare or anything in the humanities. And I think the, the notion that you can be educated without understanding science is risable. So, do you have any predictions for the near future? Predictions for what? Where a biological science is going to go, especially with the introduction of AI? I think I'm not sure where AI is going to go, but I think where biological science is going to go is a much more detailed understanding of um, individual organs and so on, which will lead us to advances in medicine. My great thanks to my guest today, Benjamin Lewin, whose uh, book, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact, is published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press. What are you doing these days other than writing books? Well, I'm writing another book on science called The Ascent of Science. You've written a book about genes. I've written a book about genes, and I write some books about wine. I write a series uh -huh. of guides about classical wine regions. And does that grow out of your interest in science, or is it...? No. Um, if I'd known, making, I would have brought a bottle of Pinot Noir. <laughs> making wine is... There's a lot of science in winemaking now. But it is still true that great wines are not made by the numbers. They're made by people who have instincts. Well, th thank you again. Uh, that does bring us to the end of our show. Uh, if you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access 
our over 800 past shows, I think it's close to nine now, uh, streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. We're going through a rather rough time, uh, which began with the pandemic, and uh, we're still feeling the effects. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact by Benjamin Lewin. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we also hope that you might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $25 a month, as long as you want to do that. And it allows us to plan for the future. Uh, and we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one in New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Elaine Wood joins us to discuss New York's current migrant crisis. We'll see you then. 